Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm Shonda Rhimes, and we're bringing you Dominant Stories, created by Shondaland Audio in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project. People say, like, there are negative feelings and positive feelings. A positive feeling is joy, and a negative feeling might be sadness or anxiety or anger or even envy. No, I always say, like, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. It tells you something about desire. Our feelings are like a compass. They tell us what direction to go in. And if we don't pay attention to them, it's like walking around with a faulty GPS. You have no idea where you're going. Hey, I'm Jess Wiener, and this is Dominant Stories, the podcast that helps us reclaim and rewrite the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our bodies, our beauty, our creativity, and our identities. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am super excited for today's guest. I am joined by Lori Gottlieb. She's an author of this incredible New York Times bestselling book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's really, really good. Lori's advice is spot on. I feel lucky because I've known Lori for years. She was a writer before she was a therapist. And now, in addition to still being in clinical practice, she writes a weekly column and she hosts a really popular podcast called Dear Therapist. And in our conversation today, we're going to dive into the psychology behind our dominant stories to help us really understand and unpack where these stories come from and how We are so influenced by our family systems. Lori, like me, believes that when we change our inner story, our inner dialogue, we can really change our life. Later on the show, we're going to be joined by Lori's 15-year-old son, Zach. He's a high school sophomore and creator of Talk With Zach, which is a really cool platform on social media where he is talking with teens about their emotional health. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. And of course, please let me know what you think of the show. Subscribe and write me a review where wherever you're listening. I really appreciate y'all. All right, let's dig in. This is the conversation I've been waiting to have for this show. Like, you have no idea. I mean, I think we actually go back, like, over a decade? Decade? Don't tell people. Shh. (laughs) I know. But I was, you know, when conceiving of the show and knowing the kinds of conversations we wanted to have, you are, like, primo on my mind because the show is about 
these dominant stories, right? The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how do we kind of unpack where those stories come from, challenge them, change them. And we know that, as you often say, this will change the trajectory of our lives. And so I wanted to dive in with you because there's something that you say often. You say, stories are about one person saying to another, this is who I am. Can you understand me? which I love. And when I think about that applying to the internal stories that we tell ourselves, those dominant stories on repeat 24-7, what do those stories, what are they telling us? Right. So I think stories are how we make sense of our lives. You know, we tell people every day, here's what happened. How was your day? Let me tell you what happened today. But they're also the internal stories, like you said, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we are all unreliable narrators. And that doesn't mean that we're we're trying to mislead. It means that we are telling our stories through a very subjective lens. And often these faulty narratives keep us stuck. You know, one example of this sort of internal story gone wrong is just how we talk to ourselves every day. The person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. And we have all kinds of stories that we tell ourselves. Stories like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or nothing ever works out for me. And we don't even realize that we're telling ourselves these stories, but they affect every decision, every action, every choice that we make in the course of a day. And so I had this therapy client who didn't realize, you know, that she talks to herself in this way with these stories. And so I often say to people, what I said with her, which was go home, listen for the voice, listen for the storyteller in your head Mm -hmm. that you don't even know is there. It's like a radio station or a TV show that you have on in the background that you don't think you're paying attention to, but you are. That's right. And I said, I want you to write down everything that voice tells you and then come back and we'll talk about it next week. And she came back the next week and she said, I can't even read this. I am such a bully to myself. Mm. And the stories that she told herself were things like this. Like she was typing an email and she made a mistake and she said, oh, you're so stupid. Now, if her friend had done that same thing, she'd tell a very different story. Like, oh, my friend's human might be the story. And it's based on a broader story. So if your story is different, you're not going to tell yourself these little mini stories during the day. But she had this broader story of, I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. Well, they say you teach what you most need to learn. And obviously, my work over these decades has been about unpacking and unraveling the stories that media tells us about ourselves and broader culture and like our family relationships. But truthfully, for me, dominant stories came up for me after I had had a very for myself, a very public breakdown that led me to a breakthrough around how many dominant stories I had, that unreliable narrator that constantly beat me up around where I should be, what success is supposed to look like. My dominant story was my worth is my work. Mm. And I really deeply fell into the unpacking and then raveling of those stories kept leading to other stories. And so I really understood then my connection to trauma, childhood trauma, and where some of those stories were born for me in my early years. And then obviously where relationships or experiences might reinforce those stories. Will you talk a little bit about the psychology behind why we have these stories and the origins of them, where they come from, so that we can begin to know where to begin to unpack them? Yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned trauma and I think that comes up so often because I think that people feel like either they experienced something that was difficult and they've kind of packed it away. They feel like, well, Mm -hmm. I'm done with that chapter. 
except if it's unprocessed, it will come out in other ways. It's sort of like the way that our feelings, we say that, oh, I'm not really going to pay attention to that feeling. That's what I'm going to do with that feeling, right? Oh, yeah, maybe I'm feeling sad or anxious, but you know what? I have a roof over my head and food on the table and I have this and that. So it's really not that bad. That's the story we tell Mm -hmm. ourselves. But it comes out in other ways, these feelings, right? So they come out in like too much food or not enough food. They come out in like, you know, too many glasses of wine at night. They come out in insomnia, in a short temperedness, in relational difficulties, in that mindless scrolling through the internet. So people will say, oh, no, I'm not feeling anything. No, you're actually feeling a lot because feelings need air. And, you know, I think that a lot of people feel like numbness when they kind of numb out their feelings. That numbness isn't nothingness. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. Yes. So, you know, what happens when you start to feel your feelings? A lot of people feel like, like you said, you called it, I think, sort of like a breakdown. But I think like when people think they're breaking down, generally they're breaking open. Yes. That's, again, like a a reframe of a story that you're not breaking down. You're breaking open. And that's the beginning of something really exciting. The way that we frame our experiences matters so much in terms of how we experience what we're actually going through. I think it was, for me, the breakthrough, but also in in the breaking open. For me, it was also a breaking away of a pattern, a long-held pattern that I had had in my life of the way that I formed relationships, the way that I positioned what I valued, what my vision was for my life was very externally motivated versus internally, you know, connected. And so we started that surface layer, right? What you were saying about your client, I'm so fat, I look terrible, I'm so stupid, all this, this narrative, um, but really trying to reconcile how we break away from some of those patterns. You know, for me, I went to a more intensive inpatient program to kind of help focus on some of that trauma recovery and to repattern those stories and to tell new stories. And and quite honestly, during the pandemic, uh, I upped my therapy to three days a week with my therapist because I knew I needed that therapy more frequently. And I wanted you to speak a little bit to how therapy as one modality is an option to help us challenge and change dominant stories. Like, how does that work if somebody's listening and this has not been their course of action yet? Yeah. I mean, the whole reason that I wrote, maybe you should talk to someone where I bring people into the therapy room and they get to go through the experience. I wanted to disabuse people of these misconceptions that they have about what therapy is, because I think that the reason that so many people don't reach out is that they think therapy is something different from what it is. They think, okay, you go to therapy and you're going to talk about your childhood forever and you're never going to leave. That's just not what therapy is. Right. You know, it's really focused a lot on the present and of course how the past informs the present, but we really want to get you to look at the present so that you can construct a different future. And so I think that what therapy really does, maybe the best example is if I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So our mm-hmm. friends, when we go to them with things, they offer us generally idiot compassion. And that doesn't mean they're idiots. It means that you say, listen to what happened. This person did this, or here's what happened at work, or here's what happened with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, or here's what happened with my mom, right? And we're like, yeah, they were wrong. You're right. That's terrible. <laughs> you go, girl, right? <laughs> Yeah. You know, you deserve better. And we love our friends so much that we truly believe that like they're in the right and the other person's in the wrong until you listen to your friends over time. And you start to hear, 
oh, maybe they keep having this kind of problem over and over. Mm. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. <laughs> right. We don't say that to our friends, right? Because we, we don't think that's being supportive. A therapist offers not idiot compassion, but wise compassion. And in wise compassion, we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. And, and the short way of saying that is we help you edit your story. So I feel like, you know, I was a writer for a long time before I became a therapist. I'm still a writer. And I use my writing every day in the therapy room because I feel like people come in with this faulty narrative. And what I'm helping them to do is to say, wait a minute, here's where the story's stuck. Here's the missing part of the story. Or look at the protagonist. Why is the protagonist going in circles instead of moving forward? Who are the heroes and who are the villains? And is that really how it should be constructed? Who are the minor characters? Who are the major characters? Do we need to reshuffle those a little bit? Mm-hmm. And so what therapy does is it gives you a really good second opinion on your life from someone who isn't already in your life. Yes. And you know, it's so funny because I was thinking about the length of time that we've known each other and like, and when I met you, you know, this was not your career path at the time. And, and I've loved watching the evolution of you bringing all of the wisdom that you had in your writing and still have in your writing, obviously, but out into this different modality. And I think something happened for me internally about five or six years ago, I think in my work where I kind of asked some similar questions and your writing has actually really helped inform those for me, which is, am I the object of somebody else's story? Am I the subject of my own? And how am I recentering the narrative differently? And we can talk about who started it, mom, you know, relationship, you know, diet culture, whatever it was. And that there's viable critical thinking there, right? But the the real power that I've experienced in exploring in these conversations has been how we can, as you say, edit these stories and the power to change these stories. And so I was really struck when you were talking about in your TED Talk, which beautifully is called How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life. You talked about folks that were really invested in the stuckness of their story, and you call them help-rejecting complainers. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I'm sure all of us listening either identify that as ourselves or know somebody who is really committed to keeping up a dominant story or an inner dialogue that isn't serving them, isn't very loving, helpful, or kind, but they really don't want to give that up. Why? Yeah. You know, they don't want to give it up because change is hard. Changing your view of yourself, your self-identity is hard. Any kind of change we make is hard. That's why New Year's resolutions tend not to work, right? Because there are all these stages of change. And I talk about those in the book too. And it starts with pre-contemplation, where you don't even know that you're contemplating making a change. And then there's contemplation where you're aware that you are thinking about making a change, but you're not ready to do it yet. And then there's preparation where you're starting to prepare to make the change, but you're still not making the change yet. And then there's action where you actually make the change. And then the most important phase of change is maintenance. And maintenance is how do we maintain the change once we make it? And the big misconception there is that people think that you make the change, you're done, and you can easily maintain it. No, no, no. Built into maintenance is you're going to slip back. You're going to be human. Change is so hard. And change is so hard because we lose the familiar. So even if the familiar is awful, let's say the familiar is the story you tell yourself about yourself. And if all of a sudden you say, wait, what if I let go of that story? Then you might say, well, who the heck am I? Right. What does that mean? Humans don't do well with uncertainty. We would rather take the thing that we know, even if it's terrible, 
then go into this unknown place where we don't know. It's like you're plopped into this foreign land where like you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know your way around, you don't know the people yet. And it's supposed to be better than the place you were. And maybe it really is, but it's really scary because it's unfamiliar. So these help-rejecting complainers, they're just going to complain about the same thing over and over. And anytime you try to help them by broadening the story, they're like, yeah, no, that won't work because, yeah, no, I can't do that because, right? And so they've always got a reason. And at a certain mm -hmm. point, the, the only thing you can do, you start to feel helpless and you're like, okay, well, then I guess there's no way out of this, even though you, you see that there is a way out of this, but they don't right. want a solution. They just want to be stuck in place. And I also think about when I've had experiences talking to people like that, I try to rationalize and communicate with that inner dominant story. And I always lose, right? Because it's just so ingrained and so entrenched and so familiar and so comfy. What would you suggest a person do if they're trying to get through to a help rejecting complainer, somebody who's not interested? Like, what are the actions they can take to, I guess, also protect themselves in that energy, because that's very draining to go round and round with somebody who says that they want help, but, but really isn't open to, to hearing it. The best way to deal with them, because it is very draining, is to agree with them, is to say, well, then I guess, I guess that's how it is, because mm. then they have nothing to come back with, right? They're like, and then right. what they do is, it's really interesting, because then what they do is they go, oh, but wait, wait, what do you mean? There's nothing. And I'm like, well, you just said there's nothing you can do. So I guess every suggestion I gave, you, you said it doesn't work. So I guess, I guess that's how it is. Now they're not sort of like holding on to their story. No one's trying to take their story away from them. Because when you're mm -hmm. arguing with them about it, they feel like you're trying to take away my story. I don't want to give it up. But if they start to say, maybe I'm ready to start editing this story a little bit, and no one's making them do it. Because they're going to fight with you. They're going to say, you know, like, well, wait a minute, maybe I could do this. You're like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> right. But that's interesting. So you actually acknowledge or affirm where they are. Or that, you know, what they're saying is, okay, there might not be options. And then see or allow them to have some movement to get to a space of wanting that change so that they're going to also start to come up with some options of what right. they can do. You don't have to agree with them that there are no options. You can just reflect back to them what they're saying that it sounds like you've, you've exhausted your options or it sounds like you feel like you've exhausted your options or it sounds like you feel mm -hmm. like there's nothing you can do. Okay. And then you just move on to a different topic so that they don't keep the complaint going. And the reason people do this, it's a protective mechanism. So let's say that someone says like, I can't go and find a partner, right? And here's why. And they'll tell you all the reasons. And some of them are very legitimate. Like it really is hard. That's true. There's a lot of like bad dates you have to go on. It's true. But really they're protecting themselves from having to risk and put themselves out there. Mm. And so that's the part of the story they're missing that, you know, is all of this other stuff true? Yes. But does that preclude people from meeting people? No, people do it every day in the world. Mm. When you work with the help rejecting complainers, you said something really funny in your TED Talk where you tell them, we're all going to die. <laughs> tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I do it a little more delicately than I did in my <laughs> TED Talk. <laughs> but basically, you know, what I do say to people is you get one life. And when you look back and the one story that does get written about us is called an obituary. And when you think about that obituary, what do you want it to say? You know, do you want it to look like just this was your life and here's what happened and then nothing changed and then you died? Or do you want to say, 
I'm living on borrowed time. We are all living on borrowed time. Life has a hundred percent mortality rate. And that is not just for other people. We like to believe it, but it's not. (laughs) And so when you start to realize that your time here is limited, maybe you start to say, I might want to have a different obituary. I might want to have a different story of my life. There's this great moment in my book, and maybe you should talk to someone where I'm with my therapist and I'm being sort of this person who's saying I'm stuck and there's no way out and I'm trapped. And, you know, it's this very common thing you see in therapy. And the person expects the therapist, by the way, to solve it for them. Mm -hmm. And, And yet we all have the answer. We just need a witness and a guide to help us access it. So he tells me, you know what, Lori, you remind me of this cartoon. And it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open. No bars. (laughs) So the question is, why don't we walk around those bars? Why don't we even notice that it's open? And it's because freedom is scary. With freedom comes responsibility. If we walk around the bars, we are responsible for our lives. We are responsible for writing that story. And sometimes we don't want the responsibility. We'd rather say, you go write the story and I'll just come along for the ride even though we actually don't like that. And sometimes we've been modeled that behavior too. We've seen our parents do it, our friends do it. You know, we've seen a lot of folks do it. The reason why I loved the We're All Gonna Die part personally is because I I did another podcast show called We're All Gonna Die Anyway, and I launched it during the pandemic. And I did it because I'd had a tremendous amount of personal loss in my life. And I was very much coming to the space of like everything you were saying. There was this question that was coming to me, which was, what is the life that you've always wanted to create that you've avoided creating? And then the pandemic happens, and it validated even more so the urgency, I think, behind those questions. The fragility of life is more front and center. I had personal loss during this period. I lost my mother-in-law and my brother-in-law to COVID. You know, we, right at the beginning, when we kind of didn't understand how the world was going to play out, I mean, in some ways, we, we maybe still don't, but there was a lot of reckoning around the reality of time. And I'm curious how in this moment, grief or loss is playing a role in the stories that you tell or the stories that you hear people tell around grief and loss, because something really big that came up was the story was right with grief as I'm never going to not feel sad, or I don't know who I'm going to be without this person. And those dominant stories rise pretty significantly when we're grieving. Yeah, I think there are two kinds of stories that people tell themselves around grief and loss, and especially during the pandemic. And I think that one of the stories is the one you were just talking about. And there's a there's actually a, a patient in my book named John who has this tragic loss of his child. And he was saying at one point, you know, I thought I could never be happy again, that I would never find joy again. I would never smile again. And just a week after his child died, he was playing a game with his other child and he laughed and he couldn't mm-hmm. believe, he's like, who is this person who was laughing like, my life is over. I am devastated. Mm. Life as I knew it will never be the same. And that is true. Life as he knew it will never be the same. But people do experience joy. They think they never will. You know, it's kind of like when people are, are in the middle of a, a deep clinical depression. And I always say to them, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now. <laughs> <laughs> right? True. Because their thinking is so distorted in that moment, they cannot see beyond the perimeter that they have put around themselves at that moment. And the thing about grief too is other people, the way they treat it, they think you're supposed to like be over it by a certain point or there's a time limit on it. People move forward, but they don't necessarily move on. And I think the moving forward is the making meaning of 
the experience for you in your life and integrating that experience into your life. It's not, you know, people will say like, it's been two years. Why is this person still feeling this way? It's like, cause that person's still dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like they're still dead. Um, right. So I think that that's important. But the other, the other thing about grief and loss during the pandemic that I noticed was people thought there was sort of supposed to be this hierarchy of grief, right? Or this hierarchy mm. of loss that if it wasn't loss of life, loss of income, loss of health, that whatever kind of loss you experienced, you could not talk about, that it didn't make it on that hierarchy. And I think it's really important for people to understand that there are all kinds of losses in our daily lives that we experience, and they, they long to be felt in order to kind of mm -hmm. move forward in the story. And there are all these silent losses that people have all the time, like someone had a miscarriage, right? And then people say, oh, but they didn't lose like an eight-year-old. You know, or they, they right. so that's what I mean by this hierarchy that somehow, you know, some losses get more attention or more compassion than others. You know, it's like it was a breakup, but it wasn't a divorce of a 20 year marriage, but it still hurts. Right. So I, I think that when we tell the story of grief, to go back to stories, mm -hmm. the story is that life comes with a lot of loss. And that I think it's really important that people are compassionate around it and give people the space to experience it. Do dominant stories or these inner stories, do they ever go away completely or do we just get better tools around them or do they just shift into something that feels less intense? I think it depends how much work you do around the story. I think that there are people who have these very deeply ingrained stories from childhood about who they are that were told to them by bigger people around them that they very much believed and internalized. And those can be really intractable until you start to understand a little bit more about the people who were telling you those stories and why mm -hmm. they were telling you those stories and to realize that those stories actually had nothing to do with you. And that's the part that's so liberating to realize like all these stories that were told about me and told to me about me were about the storyteller and not the subject of the story. Mm. I think people need to let that in. Like, can you say that one more time, that the stories that were told to you? They were about the storyteller and not about the person in the story. That's a heavy-duty one to take on, I think, because anybody who is surviving and working through childhood trauma and, and navigating those stories that, you know, might have been told to them or issues that happened to them, experiences that happened to them that form those stories. It's so natural, right, for a child to adapt to what's happened and make it about themselves. Like, if I was better, my parents wouldn't drink or fight or they would be kinder to me or this wouldn't have happened to me. And I think so many of us have grown up believing that we could have some control over that story if we had just changed ourselves. I have a podcast called Dear Therapist where we do therapy sessions with people and then we give them homework at the end and they have a week to do it and they come back and tell us how it went so we can see how effective the session was in shifting this story. Because the story that people come in with at the top of the podcast is different from the story that they leave with, just like a therapy session. I bet. And one that just came to mind in particular was this guy who said his father, when he was young, he was so emotionally abusive to him. He would tell him, you're stupid, you're worthless, you know, all these stories that he really internalized. And as an adult, he had something to prove to the world. 
not just to his to his father, but to the world. Like, I am not stupid. I am worthy. And even though he like married this wonderful person and has these wonderful kids and is so successful in his life and in a meaningful way and does meaningful things in the world, that story was still there. And in the session with him, we talked about how he's still at war. He's still in this war mm. with his father and that the war is over. He doesn't realize that he's been freed. Peace has come. <laughs> and he, he doesn't realize it yet. It was so such a revelation for him to say, oh, wow, wait a minute. It's peacetime. The war is over. I have nothing to prove to this man or to the world at large. Mm. And, and it really changed the way he started interacting with his wife. And it changed the way he started interacting with his kids. And it changed the way he started interacting with himself. The way that he saw himself had shifted. And so I think sometimes we don't even know that that narrative is still in there. That little voice is still in there. And it's not our voice. It's someone else's. All righty. I call time out. Let's take a short break and listen to these messages. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing at all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. what I need. I need more of this epic conversation. Let's go. I wanted to kind of talk about what people can do. So we've talked a lot about like recognizing these stories, the impact, the shifting that they can have in our life, the way we could operate from those stories. But when somebody has recognized that they're fighting a narrative or repeating a, a story that they don't want anymore, what are the steps to start to replace that, Lori, to start to 
reaffirm a different narrative? Because we talked about change is hard, and that's why some folks are stuck in their stories. But what if you, you've got a willing right participant who's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to, to shift this story. What do those steps look like? There are a few. One is that when you start to notice that voice that's not yours, that's that old storyteller, to really take ownership of your own story. That you start to notice it and, you know, like like I was saying with my client, right? That story of, oh, you're so stupid, right? And so when you notice yourself doing that just on your own in the world, what would a benevolent storyteller hmm. say in that moment? How would the story sound different? And the more that you can start to own your own story and not let somebody else write your story, we want to create our own autobiography. Yeah. And you want an autobiography that's accurate. And so that's where therapy comes in is, you know, how can you help to get some of those faulty narratives adjusted a little bit, make them more accurate, get a little more clarity on where they come from? What does my story actually look like? In November, we're putting out a workbook to maybe you should talk to someone. And the whole workbook is about rewriting your story. It takes people through the process. I love that so much. I can't wait to get my hands on that workbook. And I love that you talked about summoning sort of a benevolent narrator because what I've been advised in my practice and in, in my healing has been to show up to be the voice I want to, to have with this little girl inside or this younger woman inside or even just this person now. Like, how would I handle this with my own benevolence? And I actually practice saying out loud, I almost combat the dominant story. So for instance, the other day, I was literally getting into my car, heading into a meeting, and I remember something had gone really awry in the morning, a dynamic I didn't like in the program of my day. And I was really angsty about like, it's not going to work out today. It's not going to work out today. That was my dominant story, right? Like, you know, this is going to go wrong. It's not going to work out. And I literally had to disrupt or interrupt that moment. Literally, I was opening my car, I was getting in, I over and over, almost like a mantra was like, whatever happens today, I'm going to be okay. Whatever happens today, I've got what I need. Whatever happens today, I'm going to be able to handle it. Like, And I know it sounds like, I, sometimes when I say it, I'm like, it sounds for people who get it like a little Stuart Smalley. But for me, it was so important because the repetition, the kindness, the compassion in action was really important for me because conceptually, I understood that to be necessary and important, but I needed to know, like, what does that feel like in my voice, in my body? What happens? And for me, somatically, like, I breathe differently. I do start to calm down. It's like I soothe myself with those words. And so that might not be for everybody, but I know for me, it's been one way to almost take what's been on my page and my in my worksheets and, and bring it into my everyday life. Right. And what you're talking about is what people do so often, which is they generalize a story. So something didn't go well in the morning. Oh, mm -hmm. the whole day is ruined. In fact, my whole life is probably ruined. <laughs> Just give me a second. I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's the generalization. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's futurizing or catastrophizing, we call that, where you, yes. like, you make up a story about something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen, and you've turned it into a catastrophe. It's fiction. It hasn't happened yet. So you just made it up. You could make up another story. So we're talking about how to counteract that. Make up a different story. What's a story where actually things turn out okay later today? Mm -hmm. But we don't tell ourselves that story. If you have a choice between two stories, like I'm unlovable or I'm lovable, and you have evidence for both, right? <laughs> which one do we believe? We believe the one that makes us feel bad. Yep. That's what we do. We make up the story with the unhappy ending. And so there's always a different story that you can tell, but especially about the future, 
the thing about the future is it hasn't happened yet. So why even make up a story? You can just experience it and see what happens. Mm. Have you, when when you're at a place of rewriting, when when you've seen your patients really master a new narrative for themselves and 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 start to craft that, what have you seen change or happen differently? If we know that it could change our life, what does that changing of our life mean? Because I don't want people to also glamorize or imagine potentially, right? Like a movie montage where all of a sudden, like everything is rainbows and and sprinkles. But like how, what does that actually look like in reality? I think that we navigate through the world much more smoothly. And what I mean by that is that um, you have a disagreement with somebody and you see it from a much more accurate perspective. The story you tell yourself about that disagreement sounds very different. It doesn't take up so much emotional real estate. Mm -hmm. And you also have fewer of those disagreements because you're not telling all kinds of stories that get you into trouble in your head. It looks like being more clear about what gives you purpose and meaning because you're not telling yourself all kinds of stories that hold you back. It means not self-sabotaging because the story that you're telling yourself is a story that scares you. Yeah. In the podcast that's up today, in fact, the guy who's on or who's our guest and is going through a session with us, the story that he was telling himself was that nobody would want to be with him long-term in a monogamous relationship, that eventually he's going to bore them. Eventually Mm. they're going to leave. But then he's with someone who loves him, who's completely trustworthy. And what does he do? He sabotages the whole thing because it's kind of like, you know, you can't fire me. I quit. Mm-hmm. So that's when you asked, what does it do for people? What it would do for someone like this to change the story is it would make him not sabotage something really good when it comes into his life. I love that. You know, you talked about before the role of family and how a lot of times if those early stories are are coming from our family about us and to us, you know, we know that dominant stories can get passed down almost like a legacy in families. You can hear some of the same stories, right, generation to generation. I, you know, knew you before Zach was in this world, and I've obviously, you know, been so inspired and excited to see who he's emerging to be as a young human on this planet and as a young man. And we're, we're going to bring Zach on in a sec. But before we get there, I, I wanted to to talk about you and your transition into motherhood, knowing what you know and, and doing the work that you do. And how conscious or cognizant were you of making, of talking intentionally around these stories? Did you have conversations like this with Zach as you were raising him? I mean, somebody, I always imagine folks listening in are like, how are you approaching motherhood? Did you have stories <laughs> about being a mother? You know, were yeah. you like, oh shit, my story is like, I'm not going to be a great mom, like, or whatever that is. Like, what came up for you, if you don't mind sharing about like the stories you told and maybe the way that you were intentionally focused on having those conversations with Zach? I think that, you know, in my history, and I've written about this, that I always thought, I'm going to do things differently than my mother did. And then you have a kid and you're like, oh, my God, I'm doing some (laughs) of the same things that she did. And I always promised myself I would not. Mm. But the difference is that the story of my childhood was things didn't get talked about in a meaningful way. And the story of Zach's childhood is that even though, you know, I'm not a perfect mother, nobody is, that there's rupture and repair. So we know how to talk about it. We know how to repair it. We know how to say 
hey, I'm really sorry. Here's what happened just now. Mm. We can talk about feelings in our house. So for, for Zach, it's interesting because he was this kid who grew up with a therapist mom, and I don't act like a therapist at all as a mother, but my air is feelings. My air is is keeping things in the open. And so the air in our household is always like, we talk about it. That's just mm-hmm. been his experience. He didn't know that there are families where people don't talk about things. And I'm really glad. I think that that will give him the skills that he needs for the relationships that he is, you know, has now and moves into as right now he's 15. And, and we don't get taught that in school. Yes. The most important thing you can learn is how can I love and be loved? And that means not only with others, but how can I love myself? There's this idea, you know, that I was talking about earlier that there are people are afraid of their feelings instead of using them like a compass. People say like there are negative feelings and positive feelings. Like a positive feeling is joy and a negative feeling might be sadness or anxiety or anger or even envy. No, I always say like follow your envy. It tells you what you want. It tells you something about desire. Does your mm-hmm. anger mean that you need to set more boundaries? Is that what it's telling you? Does your anxiety mean something has to change, that you're making a decision that you really don't feel comfortable with? Does your sadness mean that something's not working in your life, right? And what is that? So you can do something different. Yeah. Our feelings are like a compass. They tell us what direction to go. In. And if we don't pay attention to them, it's like walking around with a faulty GPS. You have no idea where you're going. I love that. And there's an emotional fluency that you end up creating. And I, I can see that you've established that with, with Zach, especially in the work that he's doing. So I want to, we'll talk about that in a second. But I'm curious, at what age do you, you know, start talking about the rewriting of stories or the editing to use your language? Is that even, is that a term that, that Zach knows from, from growing up? And how did you introduce that? Well, I think it started very early on when I noticed that the culture was telling a, a very different story than I wanted him to hear. Anytime I would see little boys cry at the park and I would see like maybe their fathers or even sometimes their mothers say like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Don't cry. Or, you know, they were upset because someone else got to go on the slide first or something. Right. And it's like, you can say to that kid, oh, I know you're really upset that you didn't get to go first. And then, hey, let's, you know, wait in line and go, you know, whatever it is. But to just acknowledge that the feeling is valid and it exists and it's okay to feel that. And then kids know what to do with those feelings. Kids are always talked out of their feelings. Like a kid will say, I'm sad. And the parent who's really uncomfortable because you don't want your kid to feel sad will then say, oh, you know, don't be sad. Hey, let's go get some frozen yogurt. Let's go to Disneyland, right? You know, as opposed to like, let's talk about why you're sad. Or they'll say like, I'm really scared. And you hear parents all the time say like, oh, don't worry about that. There's nothing to be scared of. It's like, but they're actually scared. Right. And so the message that kids get is, oh, there are certain feelings that I am not allowed to talk about because they're bad. They're bad to feel. They're bad to talk about. As opposed to just, they're just a normal part of life. So with Zach, I always tried to be like, he's mad, he's sad, he's anxious, whatever. Let's give it some air. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I love that. I think emotions are energy in motion. They need to move through your body. They need to come out. I love, love, love this concept. And Zach is doing something, I think, really quite important for his generation and his community and using his medium, which we're going to get to talk about in a second. So I want to take a quick break and I want Lori to stick around because we're going to bring her incredible 15-year-old son, Zach, on in just a moment. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. 
Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Hey, hey, we're back. Now let's get into our convo. As a guy, you know, um, a lot of times when I've had emotions, people have told me to like man up as if like having feelings about things is bad, but it's really not. In fact, hiding your feelings is horrible for your mental health and leads to all sorts of serious problems down the road. So don't hide your feelings, guys. (laughs) That was a clip from Zach's Instagram page, Talk With Zach, where he talks about toxic masculinity and boys' emotions, and he answers questions from teens. We have Zach here with us now. Hey, Zach. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Zach, I'm curious as you listen back to that, tell me a little bit more about the origins of Talk With Zach. What made you want to create a a platform for this kind of topic in particular? So... During COVID, I was noticing that a lot of times, like the media was telling kids to talk about their mental health, but I noticed that it was especially difficult for boys. And the reason why that was, or I think is because from a very young age, men and boys are told to like sort of toughen up Mm -hmm. and like be strong and not like talk about what they're feeling. Like a year ago, my, my grandpa passed away and I was really close with him. So I was like upset about that. And one of the things I heard was like sort of like man up and like be strong, things like that and like push through. But I feel like it's important to like recognize your feelings. 
you know, and one of the things I'm trying to do is just like raise awareness about that, because the only way to really change that is to start talking about it. Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback did you get from that? What kind of comments or questions or feedback from your friends listening or others listening did you get from introducing that topic? You know, a lot of people are like, wow, like I've been thinking the same thing. And like, I've really wanted to talk about my feelings Um, But I just feel like I can't. And this video shows me that I'm not alone. I'm curious if you notice different kinds of questions coming from different sorts of folks. Some people are struggling with like coming out and some people are are talking about like, how do you like deal with a breakup? So yeah, it's like a broad range. Do you ever go to your mom to talk through some of those answers? Because that's also like some heavy duty topics to know how to navigate through. I'm curious where you get where you get your support. As a team, like I sort of like know what will resonate with my friends and I know what resonates with me. So I really like look for those and pick them out. My mom is obviously an adult um, and she was a teen. um, (laughs) Not so recently. (laughs) I don't want to make it seem like you sound old, but you know. Oh, really? Times (laughs) times have changed a lot. He doesn't actually. It's it's sort of the opposite where. I've gone to him with like my dear therapist column and I will yeah. say to him just because it's yeah. about fluency and feelings, like I will say to him, like, what do you think this person should do? Right. But when teens write to him, he knows much better than I do what's going to mm. resonate with them. I love that. It is true. And also these things are so universal still, right? The issues yeah. that we, a lot of the stuff that your mom and I dealt with as young people still exist. It's just that you also have this you know, you have this other world now where you have an audience in a way that I didn't have an audience when I was growing up. Yeah, definitely. I was a little nervous at first, but I'm really glad that like people have really responded well to this. I think the timing is really important too. You know, there's a 2019 study that I often quote a lot from Pew Research that's tracking about 96% of teens that say that depression and anxiety in their community has become more of an issue, especially during COVID. A lot of those feelings have become exacerbated. Lori, would you say that you're seeing that too across like patient conversations that some of those, you know, pre-existing conditions and, and that anxiety and depression can really ratchet up during a time like this? Yeah, it can. But I also feel like people who have dealt with depression and anxiety often have tools to deal with it. And the people who were not used to it struggled in a different way because they really didn't know, okay, here's what's helpful. Here's what I can do. Here's how I can manage Mm. this. I would say for teens, what I'm seeing in Zach's generation, and I think Zach can speak to this, is just how much pressure there is on teens. We had a 16-year-old girl who wrote into our Dear Therapist podcast, and we did a session with her. She was talking about the pressure of achieving and succeeding and identity. And what does that mean? You know, if, if your whole identity is wrapped up in a number on a test or a grade or what college you get into. And I know that Zach gets a lot of, he gets a lot of questions in his anonymous uh, form that he has on his Talk With Zach Instagram. This question of, you know, people are really feeling the pressure. Kids are really stressed out. Yeah. Do you feel that, Zach? Uh, yeah, I do. I feel like, especially like in high school, there are so many pressures, like there's academic pressure, which like, is so bad. Like right now, it has gotten so much worse, like over the years. And on top of that, there's social media. Yeah. And and there are good things about social media, like communication and talking to friends and all that. But there are also a lot of things that make people really insecure yeah. about themselves and feel really bad about themselves. 
Well, you're representing, I think, a really positive part of the internet. I'm curious, Zach, it's special, I think, the upbringing you've had with a mom who is, you know, said to me earlier that emotions were like air. That was her air, like getting emotions out and about. And what's something great that you think your mom did for you in helping to kind of create more emotional fluency or like a connection to your feelings? Like, is there one or two things that come to mind that you think like, I'm really glad you did that, mom? I feel like just like, creating an environment where like talking about feelings is okay I'm probably talking about my feelings more than I want to which in some some cases can be a good thing so I feel like (laughs) yeah yeah I feel like that is, is something I'm grateful for if you could give a piece of advice to somebody listening right now who might want to open up a conversation like this with their kids what would be one effective thing that they could do My advice for a parent wanting to like open up to make sure that your kid knows that it's like a safe space and that they could come to you with anything. How do you know if it's a safe space? Like how do kids feel it's a safe space? Could you talk a little about that? If you feel like your parents can have a huge reaction and you're going to get like in trouble and, you know, it's just going to be like a whole thing, then you're not really going to want to open up. But if you Know that if you're open and honest, that you're going to have a discussion about it. You're going to have a conversation. That can really help too. Got it. And Lori, what would you say, I think, to those that are listening, if their dominant story in the past has been like, I'm not good at talking about my own feelings. How am I going to teach my kid to talk about theirs? Like, What's something you think we could leave people with today to think about passing down the legacy of challenging and changing dominant stories? What's something good for folks to remember? I would change that story from I'm not good about talking about my feelings to I don't have a lot of practice talking about Mm. my feelings. And then what do you do with that? Well, you practice. One thing I want to really emphasize, and I think that Zach has taught me, you know, I've learned so much by being his mom. And one thing that he's taught me is that it doesn't have to always happen in one conversation. Yeah. That you don't have to get it right in every conversation. I mess up all the time. But the point is, then we come back and we have a different conversation. Yeah. Just knowing that to say to yourself, I didn't get a lot of practice doing this and I experienced a lot of discomfort, but I don't want to pass my discomfort around feelings onto my child. So I'm going to take a leap of faith and I'm going to practice and I'm, I'm not going to hold myself to some standard where I have to get it right every time. There's, and by the way, there really is no right. right. Having the conversation is doing it right, no matter what that conversation looks like. But I think what Zach said is so important that if you go to your parent and your parent freaks out, you're not going to go to your parent. And so it's not just making space for your kids' feelings, but knowing that you need to manage your own feelings. So if you have a reaction to something that your kid says, you've really got to work on what is going on for me internally so I don't project that onto my child because they're going to shut down. Practice and not perfection on this for sure. Um, Zach, where can listeners go to learn more about what you're up to in the world? Listeners can check out my Instagram. It's at TalkWithZach. Done a little bit of TikTok too. It's also Talk with Zach there. And I'll be announcing more opportunities with my website as they come in the near future. Thank you so much. And Lori, where can listeners go to learn more to get their hands on that new workbook? They can get the workbook anywhere they buy their books. They can go to an independent bookseller. They can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever they get their books. They can get the, maybe you should talk to someone 
workbook companion to the book, maybe you should talk to someone. Amazing. I feel so honored to have this conversation with both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. I always love talking with you. Yes. Likewise, likewise. Thanks, Zach. It's so nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoy this. Ah, so much wisdom from Lori and from Zach. I think something that's going to stick with me for a while is when Lori said that if we're wrestling with those dominant stories, if we're thinking about things we might have been told about ourselves as a child, for example, to really remember that the stories we were told about ourselves (laughs) are really about the storyteller. They're not about us. Just think about that. The stories we were told about perhaps our worthiness, our lovability, our appearance even, when people are telling you a story about you, it's likely really about them. Also something that really stuck out for me is the rewriting our stories. So when we are stuck in that loop of dominant stories and negative self-talk, try to imagine What a benevolent storyteller might say in that moment. Somebody who's a little kinder, a little bit more compassionate, perhaps a little bit more objective. Introducing that benevolent storyteller and interrupting that dominant story can be one way to start to rewrite yours. And then I think both Lori and Zach said this really well. These things in our lives that we want to change, they only start changing when we talk about them. So remember, it's all about practice and not perfection. Let's practice talking more about these nuanced and sometimes complicated stories. And then maybe I'll make one more plug, which is therapy, baby. It has worked for me. I know it may not be for everybody, but I do want to encourage if you need to talk to somebody, I really, really support you in doing that. about dominant stories and how you can challenge and change them, you can join me for a workshop. Learn more at jessweiner.com or you can follow me on Instagram at I'm Jess Wiener. I love that we're building a community around this conversation. And if you'd like to tell us about your dominant stories and how you're challenging, changing and rewriting them, we'd love to hear from you. You can do that in two ways. You can email us at podcast at dominantstories.com. We're already getting some great stories from y'all. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 213-259-3033. And don't worry if you didn't write those down. I'm going to put all this information in the show notes. Next week, we're going to be speaking with actor Debbie Ryan. Going from a child star to now directing her own shows, Debbie is rewriting her definition of success, and she's opening up about fame, identity, and the real power of influence. Thank you so much. And don't forget to write a review wherever you're listening. It super duper helps us out. And remember, always learning, always growing. Dominant Stories with Jess Wiener is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.